This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. You know what's driving me nuts about this bargain? We've just got too many disparate metrics to keep track of. Too many weird goalposts to watch. And after a day where the Dow gained 15 points, this would be dropped 0.01%. NASDAQ gave up 0.06%. I think all these strange non-earnings per share metrics are making the action a lot harder to understand. What do I mean by weird metrics? Now, let's just go right to it. Case in point. The stock of Netflix, all right? I know you're thinking about that one. Here's a stock that has never traded on earnings per share ever. There's just not the number anyone cares about. You'll never hear anyone come on here and say, hey, you know what? That Netflix is really cheap at 80 times earnings. No, Netflix trades on subscriber growth. As these things go, subscriber growth isn't too weird. I mean, that's a nice objective number. But once you start evaluating a stock on something other than sales or earnings, you open the floodgates to all sorts of other metrics. So it's not just subscribers. Netflix also trades on FOMO per share. That's fear of missing out. As in the subscriber count is driven by the fear that you'll miss out on great content. In a world where Netflix trades on FOMO per share, that means the Emmys matter. But Netflix did just okay at the Emmys. There wasn't anything that made people say, like, you know what? Wow, I am missing out. I see all those awards. I'm missing out on too much content. I got I to gotta, I gotta sign up. And that's why the stock got hit today. Or how about a couple of tech titans like Facebook and Alphabet? If these stocks were simply judged by their earnings per share, they'd be a heck of a lot higher because both companies are doing incredibly well. They're two of the cheapest large-cap stocks in the entire stock market. But the thing is, they don't just trade on earnings. No, what really matters to both of these stocks For both Facebook and Alphabet, the answer is investigations per share, because we know that the government is coming after them. This morning, Snap, the parent of Snapchat, revealed something called Project Voldemort. How about like Operation Potter? I don't know. Project Voldemort, equating Facebook to the Harry Potter villain, where they've been keeping track of all the nefarious things that the competitors done. Now, we know the FTC, Federal Trading Commission, is looking into everything about Facebook. So word about Snap's slam book caused the stock to get hit down more than three bucks today. See, I would tell you it's a buy, and I do like it. My chapter is a big position. But then what happens? We get another investigation per share announcement tomorrow. Stock goes down. Meanwhile, we know Alphabet is under investigation by a group of state's attorney generals uh, for anti-competitive practices. But the stock acted better today because there was at least no news. This was no investigation per share day for Alphabet. Tough luck for Facebook. Then there's Johnson Johnson. Do you know that this is one of the greatest companies on earth? It's one of only two corporations with a AAA balance sheet, other being Microsoft. Got fabulous pipeline of drugs, high organic growth, terrific management in Alex Gorsky. None of that matters. 
The stock has been a total dog because J&J now trades on lawsuits per share. They're gripped by the opioid and tax stories, and everybody's worried about the kind of settlements they may have to pay out and the big judgments occur. And, you know, when I hear about J&J, what do I hear now? Oh, there's a trial that's about to start in blah, 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 Ohio. It's like, oh, oh Jesus, who can own this stock through the, through the lawsuits per share? We're seeing the same thing in McKesson, CVS, and, of course, the generic drug makers like Tev and Mylan, which have a lot more exposure to these opioid lawsuits. These stopped trading on earnings a long time ago. They go down every time there's a loss in court, not a loss in earnings. Who can analyze that? I mean, it's very tough to quantify. It's a nasty situation. Now, the tariffs are another story that's hard to put into numbers. This morning, Apple announced that they're planning to make the new Mac Pro in Austin, Texas. And in return, they get a waiver for the parts they're importing from China. Well, that's a huge win. But it's the kind of thing where it's impossible to game. We don't know what the tariffs were for these components. We don't know how much the waivers are worth to Apple. We just know that it's positive. Is that why semiconductor plays like Intel, NVIDIA, and XP, Micron, Broadcom, that they rallied today? Was that what it was? Did it breathe new life into semiconductor capital equipment makers that apply materials and lamb? How do you put a price-to-earnings multiple on this new way to avoid the president's tariffs? That could result in a wholesale revaluation for the whole sector, so investors will pay up for the chip makers. At least until something new derails the trade negotiations with China. <coughs> and maybe it's the idea of what did happen in Montana. Maybe we need to investigate about what happened in Montana with the farmers. I mean, come on, how about the railroads? All aboard! These stocks used to be measured by the freight loads, how they were doing, which translated directly into earnings. Uh-uh, not anymore. They trade on execution. I'm talking about precision railroading, keeping better track of where all their cars are so they can charge higher prices and don't have to give too many discounts. You need to know these numbers if you're going to invest in the rails or else. (laughs) All right, then there's aerospace. I mean, no, nothing is more important to this industry than getting that Boeing 737 max back in the sky. Periodically, Boeing stock will get hit by negative publicity. Can you recall a single positive story about this company in ages? But I think it's worth hanging in there waiting for the FDA to give them approval because there's so much demand for aircraft that the stock will take off like a rocket when that happens. And those are just the tip of the iceberg. I have another dozen examples in my head, a dozen examples of stocks that simply don't trade on earnings or sales anymore. When there are only a few of these names, it was fine. But these days, there are so many of them that it's become much harder to parse what's going on in the broader market. We like earnings per share. We like revenues. But this, like, all these new I, uh, investigations per share, hard to get your arms around. Now, what do you do if you're hostage to one of these odd metrics? First, I think it's only safe to own one or two of these, because if you have too many of them in your portfolio, it's going to drive you crazy. Second, if you want stocks that are more straightforward, you can always buy some dividend names with big yields, the ATTs of the world. They'll let you sleep at night. The important thing is, is that you know how much agita you're willing to put up with. It's called suitability. It's much easier to own a dividend stock than something that trades on federal investigations per share. I'm not saying you shouldn't own these stocks with non-traditional valuation metrics, but it requires more patience than owning something normal. And you pick up the paper and you're in the paper every day. Finally, and this is the big one. You have to be skeptical of markets, entire markets, where more and more stocks are valued on something other than earnings. This is what happened during the dot-com crash. You had tons of companies that were trading on eyeballs and page clicks. Needless to say, that suspension of rigor did not end well. The more stocks that trade on weird metrics, the more likely it is that the market's overvalued. Right now, I still think the bulls have the upper hand. 
They're winning September for once. But here's the thing. You can only go up for so long based on something other than earnings before we have to accept that valuations have gotten out of whack. In other words, this is not a normal market, so we do need to be careful. At least we don't have to worry right now about, about WeWork. Yeah, because apparently that one's about tequila per share. Judging by how much tequila flowed in the office when CEO uh, uh, Slash King uh, Adam Newman was on top of his game. But with nine investment bankers in the bo- uh, doing the doing the running the books and being on the hooks, you better believe they'll find a way to get that metric in front of us. The bottom line, when we had only a few stocks that were traded on something beyond the four walls of the spreadsheet, well, that was fine. But when you have dozens of stocks, including entire sectors that have become partially unhinged from their sales or earnings, well, I have to tell you you got to proceed with caution. Let's go to Rodney in Tennessee, please. Rodney! Hi, Jim. Rita and I thank you for taking our call. Of course. Thank you. I, good. I bought Oracle, and I thought it was oversold on bad news. I've made money on this trade. The question is, should I keep it? Well, you know, there was some discord on the call because we don't know exactly what's wrong with Mark Hurd, co-CEO, but he wasn't on the call. And he's a man who has driven a lot of sales there. So I'm going to have to say you got to hold off until we know more. We don't we lack information about what's going on at Oracle. Let's go to Gary in Mississippi. Gary. Hi, Jim. Good afternoon. Pleasure talking with you. Help uh, some Pfizer stock. And with all talk of uh, the government getting into health care and pharmacies, Want to know if uh, and pushing drug price down. Want to know if Pfizer was big and diverse enough to handle that, or will it start to have an effect on them in the long run? Well, look, they are. It yields four percent, but it's down seventeen percent for the year. Why? Because it has no growth. I prefer AbbVie. AbbVie's got yield, and AbbVie's got a merger that's going to be very good. That's the one you should be in. Right? Some stocks have just become unquantifiable. They don't trade with earnings or sales. And that's why they're often difficult to assess. There's too many metrics. Oh, man, money threat. It's been a wild summer for Canopy Growth, to say the least. The company's remaining CEO talks to me for the first time tonight about the cannabis company shakeup and what's ahead for the stock. Then, how the latest IPO cycle is taking excuse from Bob Dylan. It ain't me, babe. And with all the action in the oil patch, wondering what's ahead for the commodity, I'm talking to one of the smartest guys in the business, if not the smartest. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps.
For months, the cannabis cohort has been absolutely hammered, in part because the group needed to cool down if you're getting way too hot. So when will it be safe to start picking at these pot stocks again? Regular viewers know the Canopy Growth Corp., the big Canadian marijuana producer, has been a preferred way to play this group ever since they received a monster $4 billion investment from Constellation Brands, the liquor and beer company. That was a little over a year ago. But thanks to the rotation out of cannabis, a couple of not-so-hot quarters, a major leadership change, the stock has been crushed. In April, Canopy was trading in the 50s. Now it's at 25. But there's a silver line here. The stock is now back to where it was. That's right. When Constellation made its big investment 13 months ago, same level where it bottomed during the nasty sell-off in the fourth quarter. In other words, hey, you're being given a chance to get back in at a more reasonable valuation. Should you take it? Let's take a closer look with Mark Zekluin. He's the new CEO of Canopy Growth. Get a better sense of his plans for the future. Mr. Zekluin, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. How are you? All right. Have a seat. All right. So, uh, Let's get right to it. I, you know I'm concerned. You watch the show. I'm concerned because on the last call, uh, I had thought, well, we've got a real big, good hand coming in. we got Mark. And then on the comms call, you said that you're resigning. And I was like, wow, wait a second. First Linton, then, then you. I need stability on Canopy. Yes, I think it's important we, we take a step back. Okay. Um, you know, Canopy is a big company. It's not about one person. It's not about Bruce. It's not about Mark. And as excited as we are to talk about the next CEO coming in, it's not even about that person, right? This is a company that we have built over five years, 4,000 people strong, five continents. Uh, we've been investing in intellectual property, in infrastructure, in teams and know-how. And it's those people committed to a culture, a vision, excellence, long-term shareholder value that keep it going. So we're excited about the next CEO, but it's just one piece of the puzzle, which is you know, an incredible company focused on long-term shareholder value. Are you looking for a consumer packaged goods kind of CEO who can help disrupt, say, $250 billion worth of CPG with your company? Yeah, the, the joy of this opportunity is the ultimate CEO could come from a number of places. There's obvious, you know, beverage alcohol, CPG, as you mentioned, pharmaceutical, you know, even some of the skill sets in in the tech sector are relevant, Right. right? So we have this huge variety of people we can pick from, and we're seeing great candidates come forward. Ultimately, it will be about fit. We have a very particular company, a very particular culture, a great vision, which we all believe in, and getting the right person to keep that going is what we're focused on. All right, let's talk about vaping. Uh, in the last 72 hours, I, I, I'm friendly with enough people who, who use, uh, who vape, and they're petrified. They're petrified. Maybe their stuff is bad. Maybe the quality's bad. They didn't get it from the right source. What do you say to these people? Yeah, so I would, I would say this. We're obviously seeing stories come out of the United States, and that's, that's you know, a tragic set of stories. Um, and, you know, compounding that are the unknowns, right? Because of the regulatory environment, we don't yet actually know, right? There's a lot of talk about it. Was it vitamin E or, you know, where, where the products tampered with between, you know, their, their process? So, you know, if we think, you know, to the, the canopy context, the Canadian context, you know, we're ready to launch vape products into Canada. Right. Um, and the difference is, you know, this is really a, a regulated environment. So there are rules that will govern the products that we put to market. They will go into a regulated store um, and they're being put out by a company that's been working for years to build the best possible vape product in terms of the characteristics of the product, but also safety, right? So we can do things like UL certification is a priority for our company and all of our products will have. So put simply, the battery doesn't blow up in your face or serialization. So God forbid something does happen. Mm -hmm. We can trace back and you're not waiting months to find out what happened. You can know exactly when it was filled, 
and, and what went in it, and you know things like tamper resistance. Again, so our product is our product, not something that somebody okay. took and adulterated. So there, there are a lot of things, and I think you know the, the key part for us is to focus on you know the Canadian model. Again, is is a good model we should be looking to where there's regulations, there's right. systems in place. Okay, now Bruce was on a number of shows, on my show more than anyone, and you know we enjoyed Bruce. He's fun, and he was a great about you know weed and meets weed and just a bigger than life guy. And then he got fired. And, you know, ever since he got fired, the stock has gone down. And why did he get fired? So the first thing I'll say is I would be wearing my tweed shirt as well. We're here in New York at, uh, at a Concordia policy event, which is okay. a global policy event. So otherwise, I'd be wearing, wearing my tweed shirt as well. But, you know, I think it's, it's you know, again, it, it, it's not really about, you know, Bruce and, and what's, what happened there. You know, the, the sector is under pressure. Right. Um, you know, you're seeing, uh, you know, a focus on, on, you know, more of the short-term metrics. And I do think it's important we all step back and, again, remember the big-picture opportunity here, right? All of the reasons we were, we were and are excited about the canvas opportunity still exist today. There is still an opportunity, as you put it, which is hundreds of billions of right. dollars across CBD, clinical, medical, recreational, that's still there. And so the question is, you know, which company has made the plays over the last five years in infrastructure, intellectual property, brands, the know-how, the team, to seize that opportunity over the long term? And, and of course, you know, that is, in my opinion, canopy growth. Okay, so how about the relationship with Constellation? What have you gotten out of it? I'm not seeing... Look, I mean, in the time that you guys are together, I mean, I've seen Spike Seltzer take, take over. I mean, I think a lot of people would like to see something with cannabis in it that's tasty, that's like a beer, uh, and in Canada and see what happens. And I, I like, I, where is it? Yeah, so, you know, talking about the beverages is actually a perfect example of the collaboration we have with Constellation, right? So um, you're right, seltzers are, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing in, in the U.S. right now um, and, and, you know, around the world. And, and, you know, stop and think about the cannabis beverage opportunity, right? We have an opportunity to create a precisely dosed product that gives people a reliable experience that we can relate to the experience they know with a seltzer or a beer or an alcoholic beverage. We can put it in that form factor they're familiar with, and to your point, we can make it taste good. And then we can take away some of the bad points of, right. of alcohol, right? Uh, hangovers and sure. calories and all that kind of stuff. You know, this is an incredibly compelling opportunity, and we're excited to make that taste good, put a tweed brand on it, and, and bring it to market. Well, I mean, the last thing is the acreage deal. Uh, would Constellation have done that deal? I mean, it, seemed, it was definitely Bruce's deal. And it's a lot of money. It, 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 the, it, it, to me, sometimes it's hard to justify that, they, that you got, gave them so much money. Um, why did you? So let's, I guess, put it in context of the triggering event, okay. right? As, and we're waiting right, for the U.S. But you, you got it. Well, that's it's good dough. It's good dough. We got Republicans in charge from here to eternity. So, it, of course, it's, it's real money. I would say six years okay. time frame for that triggering event. To put in context, canopy growth has just been around for six years. And think of everything that's happened in that, in that time frame. So, you know, we obviously believe a triggering event will occur. Okay. And I think the other, the other important part is, is part of this deal is that all of those things I was talking about, that beverage mm-hmm. or the vapes, all of that work we're doing is intellectual property that we can make available to acreage. to acreage in the short term, right? So not only do we have a play with the best, right. the best players in the United States, we can empower them to do even better. Okay, that's fair enough. And, but you're right, the whole group is compressed. It's not canopy. And I think it's great that you came on and explained to people all the great things that you're doing. 
And that's Mark Zaklun. He's the CEO of Canopy Growth. He will not be the CEO after they name a new CEO in sometime in the near future. They have, they have money's back yet. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. In the words of stock sage Bob Dylan, go away from my IPO window. Leave at your own chosen speed. Okay, maybe he didn't mention the word IPO. And maybe the next line of, it ain't me, babe, needs to be reversed. You aren't the one I want, babe. You aren't the one I need. I keep thinking of these lyrics because we're getting in the point in the IPO cycle where we seriously do not want more companies to come public. Either the bankers are fooling us or they're fooling themselves. Either way, they're trying to sell some real garbage just to rack up more fees. All year, I've been warning you that this moment will come, that there will be a wave of IPOs that could be the biggest risk to the market because of all this new stock supply. And supply can destroy any stock market, especially if it's a supply of bad new stocks that nobody wants and nobody needs. The valuations for some of these deals are fanciful, even if they suckered the last round of private investors, too. Was something like WeWork ever really worth $47 billion? Well, SoftBank's Masayoshi-san put in billions at that level. In other words, even though uh, WeWork's run by a truly suboptimal CEO, Adam Newman, and it's a long way from profitable, it seems like SoftBank itself lifted the value of the company by investing in higher prices. It would be like walking up a stock and then blowing it out at an artificial level. Bag them, gun them, and liquidate them. BGL! Except Newman was so busy self-destructing, it didn't work. Hence, these incredible stories we're seeing now that WeWork IPO has been postponed. SoftBank wants to get rid of Newman, bring in someone more reliable to get the valuation back on track. Of course, the whole thing's a sideshow. During this period, we've learned of massive self-dealing by Newman, not to mention huge losses and a stock that seems like it's tailor-made for short sellers to use as a proxy for falling real estate prices around the country. Because in the end, WeWork is, sadly or not sadly, just a real estate firm. We've seen this movie before. Who knows how something like Uber really got to a $68 billion valuation in that last private round? Sure seems like it was fueled by what I call the greater fool theory, with investors who put in money simply because they were salivating about a potential $120 billion valuation when Uber only came public. Google it. That's what they were looking at. Of course, the company's now worth $55 billion, and that number's shrinking rapidly as people finally realize that Uber is a glorified cab company that's losing money. I think it's only going to get worse. Ten drones took out half of Saudi Aramco's oil production. But now the investment bankers are lined up for what could be the first trillion-dollar IPO. Now, Saudi Aramco is incredibly profitable, so it's not quite the same as Uber or WeWork. But it's also a lot more vulnerable to geopolitical tensions than anyone realized. Honestly, if you were deliberately trying to design an IPO that could sop up money and really hurt this market, I don't think you could do much better than a Saudi Aramco. It's a fossil fuel Ugh, behemoth, okay, in a market that hates even the best fossil fuel names and annihilates the worst on a daily basis. I wish this IPO would just go away from the window or that the window would finally shut. But when nine banks line up to do a deal, you better believe they'll get it done by hook or by crook. It's not just the big ones. 
The small ones are starting to smell, too. Look at Peloton, which at the end of the day is really an exercycle with a twist. Look at the delusional investors who put $225 million into Postmates at a $2.4 billion valuation. That's all we need, another money-losing delivery company. As far as I'm concerned, the IPO market has become a travesty of a mockery of a sham, and it was so predictable. I've been really against this for months. Nobody listened. Now it's here. And I think it could do some real damage to the stock market, at least until these deals become so damaging that the investment bankers and their venture, venture capital clients finally throw in the darned towel. Won't that be terrific? Mike in California. Mike, Mike, Mike. Jim, a thousand booyahs from the Golden State. I like that number. Thank you. Excellent. Hey, I want to talk Silk Road Medical since we last talked. It's been about five months since their IPO. They've got a new approach for treating carotid artery disease and stroke prevention. They had a blowout earnings report, but the stock has been drifting downward of late. What say you? And well, what do you, see uh, you know, I like Silk forward? Road. You know, I like Silk Road. But this is the kind of stock that this market no longer likes. It, it wants earnings and dividends and buybacks. And this stock is the opposite. It just has to do with the Wall Street fashion show that I always talk about. How about Paul in California, Paul? Booyah, see Daddy. Mm-hmm. What's Thank up? You for taking my call. Uh, I never miss your show and love your advice and your stuff. Thank you. The stock I'm calling today is about uh, is Sonos. They produce high-end smart speakers. And right. I would like to know... Do you think Sonos can become Roku of audio streaming services? No, I do not. Roku is about about, uh, cord cut. This is an interesting home entertainment system. I I have it. The Sonos people say, are you kidding me, Jim? We're so much more than that. I say, okay, are you kidding me? You say you're so much more than that. I mean, you know, boy, am I ever tired of people saying, I don't know what I'm talking about, and we're so much more than that. Because, man, I'm, well, never mind. You get the truth. All right. We're in an IPO market, Travis. Stocks we don't need are hurting this market. I think we should have a strike against them. I'm not kidding, because it's only going to get worse. Let's go on strike together. Don't let us, don't let them give us any more of this merchandise. Much more mad money ahead. Oil stabilized a bit today, but what does it mean for the overall market? I'm going to talk with a man who knows. The Nutanix is down nearly 40% year to date. Red flag, buying opportunity, back to CEO. And oil calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. And you know what? Nancy Reagan, just say no to the next IPO. Stick with Craig. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. That's a big flaw in the story other than the fact that the guy is a complete crazy man lunatic. When you say, remember, David, there's a podcast and there's where you can't make this gesture. Takes one to know one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you <laughs> bet it does. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Last Monday, in the wake of the drone attack on Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure, the price of Brent crude spiked from 60 to 69. Not a huge move when you consider that 5% of the world's oil supply was wiped out, at least for the moment. Then over the next couple of days, the price of crude came right back down. It's not back at $64, like nothing happened. In the past, this kind of oil shock would have been devastating. Remember, it's not just the drone attacks. We've seen uh, tanker sabotage in the Straits of Ruse, attacks on Saudi pipelines, and now we're hearing muttering about the possibility of war with Iran. 
Yet oil hasn't been able to make a sustained rally, in part because the United States has leapfrogged Saudi Arabia to become the world's largest producer. Frankly, this story is so big that I don't think I can do it justice on my own. That's why I want to dig deeper on this story with Rusty Brazil. He's the president and principal energy markets consultant for RBN Energy and RBNEnergy.com, because I think he's maybe the best. No, he is the best analyst of the oil and gas industry on Earth. Rusty, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. You, Have a I'm seat. Good to be here. All right, Rusty, I, Rusty knows I go to him about 530 in the morning. Almost every day to say, what the heck? And I came to you with a big what the heck after oil did not go up appreciably after the attacks. Can you explain to people what you told me? Yeah, basically three things going on. First of all, we've got six million barrels a day of production that we didn't have the last time this occurred. So 2011, uh, the, the, the whole Libya thing happened. We had a withdrawal of, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, and this is the first time it's really a big deal happened since then. We've got six million barrels a day more production. And that means that we're just insulated from this sort of thing. But the Saudis have helped, too. The Saudis have basically integrated downstream a lot more refineries, a lot more petrochemical plants, more storage. And that means they're more resilient. So when this happened, they could react to it and basically keep the damage under control. And then there's a global market. Global market is simply tamped down right now. Growth is not what it used to be. We've got a trade war going on. Mm -hmm. uh, And there's a lot of uh, surplus storage in the market right now. After all, I mean, OPEC actually had production cut back to support prices before this happened, right? So you put all that together, and it was just not going to hang up there the way a lot of people thought. Years ago, I went through the Permian, went to go see where James Dean made uh, the movie Giant. And there was just lots of idle oil rigs, and a lot of people were talking about the Depression, never going to come back. If I go there now, it's insane. It's crazy. What the heck happened? Well, shale happened. So we came up with, the United States came up with a new way of producing oil out of formations that simply was not available before. That's a technology thing. That's happened over the last 10 years. And because of that, we can now produce oil, gas, and NGLs at uh, at rate uh, or, or unit cost far below what we could do before. And you put that together, and that's where all the production is Scott coming from. Scott Sheffield talking about 18 million barrels. I mean, where the hell are we going to pull that oil? Well, I've, I... He's we'll, a, I'm we'll, sorry, we'll, CEO of Pine. We'll put, we'll, we'll put the oil overseas. Right. But the 18 million, I, you know... I think Scott's backed off a little bit of the, <laughs> okay. over the past couple of days, but not by much. If We do several different scenarios uh, every two or three months, and our scenario that we've got right now says that if crude oil prices hang in there for the next five years at about 55 bucks, we'll get up to around 15.5. But if crude oil prices, for whatever reason, get to $65, the economics are so much better for producers that they will be able to make more money and therefore drill more wells, and production is probably actually going to exceed Scott's 18. Well, I mean, look, no one knows where to put this stuff. And, and you often talk about natural gas. We are the lowest cost natural gas in the world. Yep. We are, but we're not flooding the world with it because it takes too long to build all these things. But how about all these different, uh, if I went down to, uh, let's say, the Louisiana area, you know, we've yep. got Sharif Suki back in action, Freeport. I mean, what, the, what, what, what are, how much are we going to be able to export? We're going to be able to export 12, 13 BCF a day sometime over the next few years, two, three years. Right. So it's going to be a lot of volume moving overseas. The big question, I think, is what's going to happen to those overseas markets when all that production gets there? But I know that 
India needs some. Sharif told me India. That's China right. needs it. That there'll be room. Uh, there'll, there'll be room. The question is, room for how much at what price? That matters. Uh, and that matters. Iran is such a big producer. We, I don't. I can't even fathom the idea that people are talking about the potential war with Iran and oil doesn't go up. Well, uh, you've got to remember that a lot of people thought that oil was going to go up when Venezuela was going to hit the wall. Right. Gee, that didn't exactly happen that way, did it? And so, you know, when you, when you look at how much resilience that there is built into the marketplace, I think most of the market assumes that if prices go up, the U.S. and other countries will respond. Right. It may take a little time, so prices might spike in the short term, but not the long term. That's what we've talked about before. That forward curve right. still is on the downhill slide. Well, next question, a great friend of the show uh, recently passed away, uh, Boone Pickens, legacy of the man. Uh, he's incredible. I mean, he was a wildcatter back in the days when wildcatter meant that you would drill a well and it was either going to be a gusher or it was going to be a dry hole and you had to have the risk tolerance to be able to handle that. He took his success in doing that and then continued to be on the front end of the curve, getting into wind energy before it was cool, getting into natural gas vehicles before it was cool, sometimes maybe bleeding edge, right. but nevertheless, he'll certainly be missed by the whole industry. Now, he, you say wind. I mean, one of the things that's clearly happened, conservation. I talk to companies and they're telling energy companies, listen, uh, utilities, we want more plants in order to offset our, we want more wind to offset our own use of the environment. I mean, this thing is real. It's you real. told me, you sent me to a fellow, Kyle, he said, listen, light bulbs <laughs> themselves. Yep. Uh, so alternate energy, uh, renewable real. energy is real. It's making a significant dent. It's certainly making a huge dent in the California market right now, and it's changing up the market. The market is going to be reacting to this as long as you and I are going to be caring about this. I just, it is hard for me to believe it. A lot of it seems to be happening without Trump, right? I think that's true. You know, there's a, the Trump administration has a lot of initiatives that are going on that maybe or maybe not will have any kind of impact on the market in the short term. But the main thing is the Trump administration has not done anything to hold the market back. Right. So we're, we're, we're getting pipelines approved. We're building new LNG export terminals. Uh, producers are still drilling and completing wells. As long as that's happening, I think most of producers are looking at that as a win in Washington. Wow. Well, I've got to tell you, you've been right this rain the whole way. Always telling me no more big spikes, no more $100 moves. That's Rusty Brazil. He's the president and principal energy markets consultant for RBN Energy, rbnenergy.com. I think he's the most must-read. It's by 610 each morning. And, boy, he's got some great stuff about music, too, if you care about it. Man, buddy's back into the break. It is time! It's time for the lightning round. Of course, one more time. 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 They put some stuff in there that I don't like, one of which is PayPal. I, I think your advisors are actually quite smart, and I think PayPal is terrific. Dan Schulman's doing a great job. There's a lot of upside if they get it right, and so far they've got it very right. I'm going to go with your advisors. Let's go with John in Florida. John. 
Hello, Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Hey, the yes, sir. The, the Philadelphia Eagles have the drop. The Miami Dolphins are tanking. Hopefully this stock does neither. Uh, that's NEE. It has a uh, high 52-week high of 226,000. you got to win it there at NEE. NEE is going to be in the Super Bowl again. They're going to play the Pats. I get that sense. I like NEs. Good stock. Let's go to Jim in New York. Jim. Hey, Jim. Big fan. First-time caller here. Okay. Jim, I recently purchased Exact Science EXAS. Since then, it's been beaten down for no apparent reason. Well, you know what? There's a lot of uh, high multiple stocks that have been sold off. They just got European approval for one of the things. They're doing a lot more besides just colon cancer. I say bye. All right, let's go to Sean in Alabama. Sean. Yes, sir. I wanted to ask about Sarepta, S-R-P-T. Sarepta's become too hard. It's just too hard to make a determination. Uh, sometimes you just got to punt. It's fourth and ten. I'm punting. I, I, I can't figure it. Stock's just going down, down, down on some new iteration of something that's wrong. Uh, I can't touch it. Let's go to David in California. David. Booyah from Carmel, California, Mr. Kramer. Beautiful out there. What's going on? After reading Zach's SCR Digest article by John Vandermosen, I am now eyeballing a biomedical company that has a serious cancer-fighting drug that I think that you would like. Um, I get the feeling this thing is purposely being slow-walked for 16 years now, and this drug should be put to good use, saving some lives. Uh, my question is this. If this biomedical company goes broke before this drug gets approved, what happens to the drug in the study? And should I buy stock in this company? A way for someone else to take it over. The company name is Celsi. That's ticker CVM. They don't have a lot of money under Matt. They don't have a lot of money in their documents, uh, in their coffers. However, I share with you the idea that it is an interesting situation. It's just a good spec. That's the only way I can describe it as a really good uh, spec. Let's go to Elizabeth in Florida. Elizabeth. Hey, Jim. Elizabeth here. Okay. Sending you a big good Miami yeah. Long-time oh, listener, first-time caller. Thank you. My stock tonight is MFA Financials, a REIT that is currently up about 10% year-to-date and paying a yield of about, I don't know, 10.5%. Yeah, but it's lever finance, so we don't know what they own. And in a downturn, we could get very hurt without even knowing what they have. So I'm going to have to take a pass on that one. That I think you're reaching for yield, and I do not like to reach for yield. Let's go to Michelle in Kansas. Michelle. Hi, Jim. Hi, Michelle. My stock is uh, Fidelity National Information Services. It's a fantastic fintech stock with an $80 billion market cap that nobody talks about. And it is excellent. It's a really good situation. And that lays up inclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. How do you know when it's safe to circle back to a formerly high-flying stock that's been beaten down for maybe all the wrong reasons? Look at Nutanix as the cloud infrastructure play that deals in what are known as hyper-converged systems. Earlier this year, the company announced that it was adopt a software-as-a-service business model. You know, we like those. Something that's worked wonders for everybody from Adobe to Autodesk. However, this kind of transition can do some real near-term havoc and damage to your numbers as you trade big one-off software license sales for lots of smaller recurring payments. Sure enough, Nutanix saw its stock plummet from 53 in February down to 17 and change in August. But in the last few weeks, it's shown some signs of life. 
especially since the cut reported an, up, an upside surprise late last month with guidance that was good enough for investors to start giving them the benefit of the doubt at last. Now Nutanix is back to 26. It could have more room to run, but do not take it from me. Let's take a closer look with Deeraj Pandey. He is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Nutanix. Get a better sense of how his company's doing where it's headed. Mr. Pandey, welcome back to Man Money. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you. Thank you so much. All right. Now, uh, Deeraj, you yourself have said that it is hard to spot the underlying growth because of subscript, the subscription transformation. Explain how even you have to admit that it's harder to spot. Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me on our 10th year anniversary. Oh, finished 10 years congratulations. Today. And it's been a journey of a lifetime. You know, we've had to put uh, two model changes in the last 10 years. Right. And, um, and uh, it's not easy, as I was saying, you know, in, in that uh, treatise, you know, at some level, the idea that you're going from one business model to another uh, also has all these comparables of apples and oranges built in. And subscription, I mean, the first thing is why. Why subscription? And I go back to this new era of subscription economy, you know, iTunes right, versus you know, we liked that on our show. Spotify. You know, I think, you know, people thought Apple had digitized music, and then there was Spotify that digitized it even further with subscription. I think uh, our customers are looking for piecemeal, bite-sized infrastructure, okay. is continuous consumption, continuous delivery, and uh, doing a lot of this stuff going from TCV, which is total contract value, mm-hmm. to annual contract value. Oh, big change. So explain a lot of that stuff, actually. Yeah. Okay, now, we have uh, Sanjay Poonanon, and you're no stranger to him. He's uh, COO of, of, of VMware, and he's making some really big deals. And sometimes I wonder, is this hyper-converged market big enough for both of you? Tell me how big it is and whether you have to fight tooth and nail against these guys. Mm. You know, the most important thing about the market is that it's ever-expanding. We were hyper-converging boxes and machines on-prem, mm-hmm. and now we have to hyper-converge clouds. Because people are really saying, can you take your software to the public cloud? Right. And, you know, our Fortune 10 companies that have spent tens of millions in the last 12 months with right. us and doing subscription are saying, let's take you to public cloud as well. Because then the real question to hybridizing your overall mm-hmm. experience is where hyperconvergence becomes relevant one more time. So we don't look at ourselves as a private cloud-only solution. Right. Many of our customers are saying, let's go and solve this problem between on-prem and off-prem. Okay, now uh, Deutsche Bank, which has a hold on you, put out a headline that I think sometimes captures it. It makes me more concerned. I want to be sure it's just not subscription because it's called Better Than Feared But Still Messy, implying about worrying about share losses to Dell VMware. How can you give us some assurances that's not happening? Well, uh, eventually it goes back to what are we really, uh, what do we stand for? It's reliability, reliability, reliability. Reliability of products, reliability of customer success, mm-hmm. of customer support. So Fortune 100 companies are actually looking at Nutanix as the more reliable product than anything else out there. And, I mean, one of them, for example, a Fortune 5 retailer, they're spending tens of millions of dollars with us simply because of reliability. And I think we want our competitors to go and market this whole idea of hyperconvergence. Right. Because without them and their marketing dollars, we can't be the only one going and doing this. The market will grow because of more larger companies in this space. Okay, so in the last quarter, you had 71%. Uh, quarter, fourth quarter 19 subscription billings mix plus 19 points year over year. What numbers should we be looking at to try to figure out exactly when things cross over and we should just say it is apples to apples? Well, uh, so in the last uh, 12 months, I would say last nine months, you know, mm-hmm. we really uh, said let's plow through this transition. Right. 
71 percent of our business is now subscription oh. which is which is from where it was a year ago to where it is today that's quite impressive that you did you know that. an annual contract value which is now the new currency in which we're measuring ourselves is growing 61 percent year over year it's half a billion plus already so i think the coming three four quarters is where we are really focused on making sure we plow through this whole thing so that then the street can do apples to apples right now how about partnerships where are you guys well, the best part is that you know this HP partnership partnership has looked great for us. Mm-hmm. You know, they're also talking about subscription and the subscription economy. You know what we're doing with them with GreenLake, where they'll sell our software. Right. I think that's going to be a big piece for us. What we're going to do with the hyperscalers is another big piece. You know, I think that's the place where it's become extremely consumer grade. In the partnership right. with hyperscalers about APIs, and we are using our APIs to really go uh, solve problems of hybrid cloud for our customers. See, I, I know as someone who used to pick stocks for a living, I want to get in before the explosion. I feel like that you're, the comeback is in large part because you've explained to people the progression. Uh, what will happen uh, if there's a way? I'm trying to figure out, is there, are there some big contracts that are about to occur? Um, will you be telling people at an analyst meeting that you just won these three big accounts? I mean, I, just, I, I don't want to miss the inflection, but I also don't want to hurt people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the investor day in March is going to be a big one okay, for us. So that's we really talk about the inflection point of uh, of the company. We would have gone through at least four or five quarters of uh, plowing through the subscription itself. And uh, I think in general, look, uh, I look at if we didn't take the short-term pain, we would not have the long-term game of being a yeah, hybrid cloud you company. You had to do it. I said, dear, when I was at 16, I was thinking, I'm doing some work on Twitter, preparation for tomorrow. I have an interview with, uh, with Bob Iger. I, it, I, he was talking about how when Twitter fell, it was a good time to pounce, you know, in the low teens. So when your stock was in the low teens, I thought, you know what, Deere's going to get a phone call, and he's going to have a hard time saying no. Mm-hmm. How do you stay independent knowing that we all both know what's about to happen? Well, I think, look, we uh, work for what I call at least, you know, you you know, think about long-term gains. Right. And along the way, if there are uh, offers that come in, we actually talk to those companies. Okay. And we, we realize what it means to think about coming together or not. And right now is a low. I mean, I wouldn't sell when it's low, when you have to right. think about how do you go through this transition first before you really talk about anything else. All right. Well, look, we look forward and stay close. And I thought it was great that you came on. And I know a messy quarter, sometimes execs won't come in. But the model change that we saw, and we had Shantan, Shantan Ryan, when he made the model change, and we believed, and no one believed. It was incredible. It was like us and Chantanu. But I'm so glad that we uh, got on that, and I'm glad that we're staying, staying close to you. Okay? Okay, that's Deeraj Pandey, CEO of Nutanix. And the stock has made a very big turn, but it's still well below where it was. So it could be an opportunity. We should stick with Kramer. Trade war per share agricultural plummeting birth share. I mean, the reason why it's so hard, guys, it's just not a traditionally valued market. So let's stay cool and calm. I like to say that there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. 
apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.